So let me read to you chapter 45, verses 1 through 12. It says, When you allot the land as an inheritance, you shall set apart for the Lord a portion of the land as a holy district, 25,000 cubits long and 20,000 cubits broad. It shall, be a, it shall be holy throughout its whole extent of this square plot of 500 by 500 cubits shall be for the sanctuary with 50 cubits for an open space around it. And from this measured district you shall measure off a section 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 broad in which shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. It shall be the holy portion of the land. It shall be for the priests who minister in the sanctuary and approach the Lord to minister to him. And it shall be a place for their houses and a holy place for the sanctuary. Another section, 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 cubits broad, shall be for the Levites who minister at the temple as their possession for cities to live in. Alongside the portion set apart as the holy district, you shall assign for the property of the city an area of 5,000 cubits broad and 25,000 cubits long. It shall belong to the whole house of Israel. And to the, to the prince shall belong the land on both sides of the holy district and the property of the city alongside the holy district and the property of the city on the west and on the east corresponding in length to one of the tribal portions and extending from the western to the eastern boundary of the land. It is to be his property in Israel. And my princes shall no more oppress my people, but they shall let the house of Israel have the land according to their tribes. Thus says the Lord God, Enough, O princes of Israel, put away violence and oppression, and execute justice and righteousness. Cease your ev evictions of my people, declares the Lord God. You shall have just balances, a just ephah, and a just bath. The ephah and the bath shall be of, one, of the same measure, the bath containing one-tenth of an omer, and the ephah one-tenth of an omer. The omer shall be the standard measure. The shekel shall be twenty geras, and tw twenty shekels plus twenty-five shekels plus fifteen shekels, shall be your mina. All right, so we're going to stop right here and take some time to kind of break this down. We've been speaking of a future reallotment of the land of Israel for the 12 tribes, which you see on the left-hand side of your paper that we've handed out. We're going to give more specific details about that next week. We'll get into that next week. But here we also see that there'll be a holy section set apart for the temple, the priests and their families, and the prince and the city of Jerusalem. All of that has been set aside. It's a big section. It's going to be in the middle of the land. This holy section will be situated between Judah and Benjamin with seven tribes to the north and five tribes to the south. Jump over to Ezekiel chapter 48 and look at verses 8 through 22. Chapter 48, starting in verse 8. It says, Adjoining the territory of Judah from the east side to the west shall be the portion which you shall set apart, 25,000 cubits in, in breadth and length and equal to one of the tribal portions from the east side to the west with the sanctuary in the midst of it. The portion that you shall set up for the Lord shall be 25,000 cubits in length and 20,000 in breadth. These shall be the allotments of the holy portion. The priest shall have an allotment measuring 25,000 cubits on the northern side, 10,000 cubits in breadth and on the, west, on the western side, and 10,000 in breadth on the eastern side, and 25,000 in length on the southern side with the sanctuary of the Lord in the midst of it. This shall be for the consecrated priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept my charge, who did not go astray when the people of Israel went astray, as the Levites did. And it shall belong to them as a special portion from the holy portion of the land, a most holy place adjoining the territory of the Levites, and alongside the territory of the priests. The, and the Levites shall have an allotment, 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 in breadth, the whole length shall be 25,000 cubits and the breadth 20,000. 
They shall not sell or exchange any of it. They shall not alienate this choice portion of the land, for it's holy to the Lord. The remainder, 5,000 cubits in breadth and 25,000 in length, shall be for a common use for the city, for dwellings and for open country. In the midst of it shall be the city, and there shall be its measurement, the north side, 4,500 cubits, the south side, 4,500 and the east side 4,500, and the west side 4,500, and the city shall have open land on the north 250 cubits, and on the south 250, on the east 250, and on the west 250. The remainder of the length alongside the holy portion shall be 10,000 cubits to the east, and 10,000 to the west, and it shall be alongside the holy portion. Its produce shall be for food for the workers of the city, and the workers of the city from all tribes of Israel shall till it, the whole portion that you shall set apart shall be 25,000 cubits square. That is the holy portion together with the property of the city. What remains on both sides of the holy portion and of the property of the city shall belong to the prince, extending from the 25,000 cubits of the holy portion to the east border and westward from 25,000 cubits to the west border, parallel to the tribal portions. It shall belong to the prince. The holy portion with the sanctuary of the temple shall be in its midst. It shall be separate from the property of the Levites and the property of the city, which are in the midst of that which belongs to the prince. The portion of the prince shall be, lie between the territory of Judah and the territory of Benjamin. Now, here we see that in chapter 45 and chapter 48, almost very similar instructions about this holy portion that's going to be there in the middle of the land of Israel during this time of the millennial kingdom. Again, as you've heard me say before, this is evidence of the future time since none of this has ever happened yet. But it's so specific, it has to literally happen. This is not symbolic. This is not something you try to say, well, this represents this and this represents that. No, it's very, very clear that this is going to happen. This is what's going to happen at the end of the tribulation period when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom. And he starts the millennial kingdom by standing on the Mount of Olives and it splits in two. And as you're going to see next week, there's going to be a river that flows from the temple out underneath the temple. Uh, uh, foundation that turns the Dead Sea fresh. It's just going to be an amazing, amazing time. But the Israelites are going to be given their land, the fullness of it that God promised them way, way back. We'll get into that next week as well. But there's going to be a holy portion in the middle where you see that the temple area is actually not going to be in the city of Jerusalem, but it's going to be north of the city of Jerusalem. And the city is going to be to the south. And uh, the city is going to be bigger than it is already. But again, we'll get to that in just a little bit. But going back to chapter 45 of Ezekiel, we see that the princes will not enlarge their property lines by taking land from the people as they did in times past. By the way, some of you are really curious as to how many miles this is by how many miles and all that stuff. I could do all that work for you, but it would be fun for some and we'd lose most of you. Those of you that love to do that kind of stuff, go figure out how far the cubit was and do your math, pull your calculators out, get your graph paper, have a blast. But I can tell you this much, the holy portion's around eight miles long by three something miles wide. That gives you a rough idea. You want to get into the specifics? You engineers, go have a blast. Go have a blast. All right. But now, as we saw here, the princes were not allowed to enlarge their property lines. This actually was a problem in Israel. And, and when this time comes, those who are going to be in leadership in Israel, those who are going to be princes. There's going to be the prince, which we've been looking at as David, but there's going to be princes, those in rulership. Remember, those of us who are alive uh, at that time, who've been given this righteousness, who because of our faith in Jesus, we're going to rule and reign with him. We're going to be actually ruling over the Gentile nations all over the globe. 
And as you remember, Jesus said, because you've been faithful with so much, I'm going to give you in charge of so many cities. We're going to have authority. We're actually going to be rulers in this time to come. And there's going to be princes in Israel, but they're told, don't do like you did in the past, where you enlarged your property by taking other people's property. Go to chapter 46 and look at verses 16 through 18. It says, thus says the Lord God, if the prince makes a gift to any of his sons as his inheritance, it shall belong to his sons. It is their property by inheritance. But if he makes a gift out of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be to his be his to the year of liberty. Then it shall revert to the prince. Surely it is his inheritance. It shall belong to his sons. The prince shall not take any of the inheritance of the people, thrusting them out of their property. He shall give his sons their inheritance out of his own property so that none of my people shall be scattered from his property. There was a problem among the leadership of Israel, as you're about to see, I'm going to take you back and walk you through these passages that show this, where the rulers in Israel weren't satisfied with what they had been given by God. And so they decided they were going to use their authority and their power and take the land that belonged to other people just because they could and nobody could stop them. By the way, not being satisfied with what God gave them, who does that sound like? Satan. Well, let me show you. Go to Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel 22. Look at verses 26 through 29. Ezekiel 22, starting in verse 26. It says, her priests, Israel's priests have done violence to my law and they have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. They have not taught the difference between unclean and clean and they have disregarded my Sabbaths. So I'm profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. Here is it back earlier. We saw in our study, they were talking about the wickedness of Israel and why God was going to at that time judge them and have Nebuchadnezzar wipe them all out, take them into captivity. And it talked about how the priests were doing bad and the princes were actually using their authority in the wrong way to take advantage of the people. Go back to Numbers chapter 36. Numbers 36, verses 7 through 13. This is part of the law of God. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father. So that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another. For each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. The daughters of Zelophehad, it says, did as the Lord commanded Moses. For Mala, Terza, Hagla, Milcah, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, I can't even say it now, Zelophehad, were married to sons of their father's brothers. They were married into the clans of the people of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's clan. These are the commandments and the rules of the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan 
at Jericho. Now, we're going to get to in a little bit why God says this, but this was a pretty clear instruction, wasn't it, from God? When God gave the Israelites their land and their inheritance in the land when they brought them in the first time, they were not to pass it around. It was to stay in each tribe's inheritance that was not to be taken from others. God had a reason. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But unfortunately, people in power abused their power and started taking other people's land. Some of you may know this story. Some of you may not. Go to 1 Kings chapter 21, one of the most famous examples of this being broken in the history of Israel. 1 Kings chapter 21. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 16. It says, Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden. Because it's near my house, and I'll give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Isn't that what we just read in the book of Numbers? They weren't to do that, were they? <clears throat> and Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed, and he turned away his face and wouldn't eat no food. He's thrown a hissy fit. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him. By the way, if you don't know, Jezebel's not a great influence on anybody. Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, you have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. And as it is written in the letters that she had sent to them, and they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. And as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Now, we have to keep some things in mind here. Of course, our reaction is, wow, that's horrible, that's wicked. Well, don't be surprised. Who's influencing Ahab? Jezebel. Now, who's influencing Jezebel? Oh, didn't the same thing happen to Jesus? How was Jesus put to death? He was without sin. Yet they sent some people in to accuse him of things that he had never done. And he was put on trial and accused falsely and put to death. Oh, God knows. He's working this all out. You can sit here and we can talk about how bad Ahab is. But didn't David do Similarly, David did the same thing when he took another man's wife, got her pregnant, and then to hide it, had, her, had him go try to sleep with his wife to cover it up. But then when he wouldn't, he had him put to death and then took her as his wife. 
God's a God of forgiveness and God's a God of mercy and God's a God of grace because David did just the same thing Ahab did. But David repented. David was grieved for his sin and God forgave. There were consequences for David's sin, but God forgave. In this instance, there was none for Ahab and Jezebel. But again, here we see a picture of the kings just taking what they wanted. And the guy Naboth was righteous in the fact that he said, no, I know you're offering me more money. I know you're offering me another property, but I'm not supposed to give my inheritance to you. That's supposed to stay in our family. God said so. And they got him killed. Let me say this to you as well. Folks, don't be surprised if obedience to the Lord in this day and age in which we live doesn't get us killed. I pray the rapture comes soon, but there's no promise that it'll happen right away. And as things continue in this country to go down the tubes, don't be surprised if those of us who are willing to stand up and say, thus says the Lord, aren't put to death because of it. Because we're not playing the game with the people in power. Go to Isaiah chapter 5. Look at verses 8 and 9. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath and omer of seed shall yield but one ephah. Here we see God's judgment coming on the nation of Israel because of their sin and how the land's going to be desolate. But what was the reason why one of the many reasons why the judgment was coming, it says so right there in verse 8. What were they doing? Adding on, changing the boundaries, adding more and more. Well, what wasn't theirs to get more and to get more and to get more. Haven't we all heard the phrase in, a, in the world today? He who dies with the most toys wins. He who dies with the most wins. Isn't that the attitude of the world? That's the attitude that brings judgment. Go to Hosea chapter 5. Look at verses, just verse 10. Hosea chapter 5, just verse 10. It says, The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I'll pour out my wrath like water. Has anybody caught on yet that as God's been using the prophets to warn Israel about their sin and their wickedness, he's talking about all the different things. But one of the things that keeps coming up through Isaiah, through Ezekiel, through Hosea now, Part of the reason why God was bringing judgment is because the land that he had distributed for a reason and for a purpose to each of these people in these tribes was now being moved around as man saw fit. And even the leaders, the princes, were taking property that didn't belong to them. Go to one more place. Go to Micah chapter 2. Look at verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it's in the power of their hand. They cover fields and seize them. So they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. 
I just want you to see that when God said to the nation of Israel, as he's giving Ezekiel the, pro the, the promise of the future millennial kingdom and the distribution of the land, which we're going to get into next week, he said to him, look, make sure that it goes to who it's supposed to go to. And those of you in leadership, don't take other people's property anymore. We need to be reminded of Psalm 24. Go to Psalm 24. Look at verses 1 and 2. I want you to keep this in mind. Now, especially in this day and age in which we live, in which the whole world's up in arms about a piece of property over there in Israel. Psalm 24. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who made the world? Who made the earth? God did. Who owns it? God does. And he gets to distribute it however he chooses. And he gets to choose who gets to live where and when. He puts people in power. He takes them out. He raises up kingdoms. He removes them for his purposes and his plan. And folks, I know it's not politically correct in this day and age, but let me just tell you, God gave that land to the nation of Israel as a promise and an everlasting inheritance to Abraham and his descendants. Oh, he removed them from the land for a long time because of their disobedience. He would bring them back in, but then he removed them again. And then with the killing of the Messiah and the rejection of the Messiah, they were scattered to the nations. But miraculously, just like he said he would in the very, very last days, they would be back in the land when the prophecies will be fulfilled for the, the Antichrist and all the different things that are going to happen through the tribulation period. And we're living in those days now. But guess what? The Bible says they're going to be scattered from it one more time. At the end of the tribulation period, they're going to be scattered. Two-thirds of them are going to be killed. They're going to run out into the area of Moab and the desert of Edom and be protected by God in the last half of the tribulation period. And when that time comes to an end at the Battle of Armageddon, God will bring the remnant, those Jews that are alive, that have survived and turned to the Lord in faith. He's going to bring them back to the land, bring them from all the places that they've hit, been scattered. And he's going to set up this kingdom we've been studying about. But listen to me. God gave it to them. And it's his. And we need to keep in mind, we as a nation are in trouble if we try to decide, well, tell you what, let's make peace by giving you some of this land and you some of this land. Isn't that what the peace processes are? Go with me to Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3, prophecy about the end of the tribulation period. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Joel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And I will enter into judgment with the nations there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel. Because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. Oh, remember when we did all those studies in Ezekiel about the different nations and Moab and Edom and Ammonites and all that and their judgment? Do you remember how all tied through that was how the people were wanting the land of Israel? God's keeping track, folks. So pray for our country and our leadership that they would be pro-Israel and want that land to belong to them. Oh, that's not going to be politically correct. It's going to get worse and worse. The Bible says that Israel and Jerusalem is going to be a stumbling block and a cup of, 
stumbling to the whole world, and it is, but I'm just going to tell you straight up, and I'll get right to you, be willing to stand for what God has said, and just leave it at that. Go ahead. I never thought about it. Does that mean that they actually will divide up the land and make it two states, sort of? I don't know, but I, I lean toward that might be what is the quote-unquote peace treaty that is ratified. If you go back to Daniel chapter 9, it's a great question. If you go back to Daniel chapter 9, the Antichrist is going to come, and he's going to confirm a covenant. If you actually go back, and again, please don't hear me say this is the exact covenant that it's going to be, but way back in the time of uh, um, Jimmy Carter, there was the peace treaties. And they had the Camp David peace accords. And there was a seven-year, interesting, seven-year peace treaty that was drawn up. It was never ratified. But it included a dividing of the land. I won't be surprised if that is a part of the deal. But there's going to be a covenant that makes Israel go, hey, everything's cool. And then they're going to find out that they made a deal with the devil. A lot of people in Israel, a lot of Jewish people in Israel, liberal-type Jews, are mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. No, actually, there are a lot of Jews that are thinking, man, if we could just give them what they want, we'll be fine. They have no idea that they don't realize that they don't know the scriptures. Israel's back in the land, but they're not worshiping God as a whole, as a nation. They don't they don't believe the word of God. But I'm just saying for us and for our nation, we know what God has said. So don't get sucked into the political arguments. You know, you'd be amazed, folks, how many Christians, how many denominations are pro-Palestine? Yeah, it's, it goes back to what we've been seeing here in the Word. Isn't it interesting how we can look at Ahab and what he did to take Naboth's vineyard, yet be blind to the fact that the nations are saying, we're going to take that little piece of property away from you? They even try to say things like, David was never king in Israel. There was never, it was never the, 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 the um, capital of Israel and all this kind of stuff. It's amazing. I just want to be an encouragement to you. Stick with the word. Stick with the word. All right. Now, we'll get back to, and I'll get right to you in a second. We'll get back to our, our uh, distribution of the land next week in specifics. But go ahead. Well, I just want to say, as, as early history as the Holocaust, that we have deniers. Oh, yeah. There's even people that tried to deny the Holocaust. You're right. You're right. Go back to chapter 45 of Ezekiel. Look at verses 13 through 25. In verse 13, it says, This is the offering that you shall make one-sixth of an ephah from each omer of wheat and one-sixth of an ephah from each omer of barley. And the, as the fixed portion of oil measured in baths, one-tenth of a bath from each core, the core like the omer contains ten baths, and one sheep from every flock of two hundred from the watering places of Israel for grain offering, uh, burn offering and peace offerings to make atonement for them, declares the Lord God. All the people of the land shall be obliged to give this offering to the prince in Israel. It shall be the prince's duty to furnish the burn offerings, the grain offerings and drink offerings at the feasts, the new moons and the Sabbaths, all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. He shall provide the sin offering, grain offering, burn offerings and peace offerings to make atonement on behalf of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, in the first month, on the first day of the month, you shall take a bull from the herd without blemish and purify the sanctuary. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering and put it on the doorposts of the, of the temple, the four corners of the ledge of the altar, and the posts of the gate of the inner court. You shall do the same on the seventh day of the month for anyone who has sinned through error or ignorance, so you shall make atonement for the temple. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, you shall celebrate the feast of the Passover, and for seven days unleavened bread shall be eaten. 
On that day the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a young bull for a sin offering. And on the seven days of the festival he shall provide as a burnt offering to the Lord seven young bulls and seven rams without blemish on each of the seven days. And a male goat daily for a sin offering. And he shall provide as a grain offering an ephah for each bull, an ephah for each ram, and a hint of oil to each ephah. In the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month, and for seven days of the feast, he shall make the same provisions for sin offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, and for the oil. Now, this is interesting. It says, The prince shall offer the offerings for the people at the Sabbaths, the new moons, and all the appointed feasts of Israel. In the millennial kingdom, there's actually only going to be four feasts instead of seven like they were in the Old Testament. And one of them is going to be new. And a lot of people don't realize this, but as you take a look closely at what's being said here, it actually shows us which feasts are to be celebrated and which ones aren't to be celebrated during the Millennial Kingdom. The new feast that's going to be added is going to be the Feast of the New Year. Look at Ezekiel 45, verses 18 through 20. Thus says the Lord God, in the first month, on the first day of the month, you shall take a bull from the herd without blemish and purify the sanctuary. And the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering and put on the doorpost of the temple and the four corners of the ledge of the altar and the post of the gate and the inner court. You shall do the same on the seventh day of the month for anyone who has sinned through error or ignorance so she will make atonement for the temple. So on the first day of the month, they're to do this. But then we also see in verses 21 through 24 that there's going to be the Passover festival and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And as we saw in the New Testament, they were kind of tied together. The Feast, the feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread. And again, if you look again, and I'm not going to read it to you, but in verses 21 through 24, you see the instructions about the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now also in Ezekiel 45 verse 25, we see the, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths is to be celebrated as well. Look at, again, it says in the seventh month, on the 15th day of the month, and for seven, the seven days of the feast, the prince shall take the same provisions for sin offerings and burnt offerings and grain offerings and for the oil. Now some of you say, well, how do we know that's the Feast of Booths? Well, how we know that's the Feast of Booths is from Leviticus chapter 23. Put a bookmark here, go with me to Leviticus 23. 17th, seventh month, 15th day, Leviticus 23, verses 23, uh, sorry, 33 and 34. Leviticus 23, 33 and 34 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the 15th day of the se this seventh month, and for seven days the, is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. So this is the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this is interesting. To say specifically why only these feasts will be celebrated in the Millennial Kingdom would be guessing, straight up. All right, to even try to speculate would be guessing. I'm going to say maybe the ones not mentioned, which by the way is First Fruits, Pentecost, Feast of Trumpets, and the Day of Atonement, would not have the same remembrance purposes for Israel that the others will provide. As you take a look at the feasts that are going to be continued, remember they're for remembrance purposes. The Feast of First Fruits, which is when Jesus rose from the dead, I think that's kind of evident because he's sitting right there. Uh, the, you get the Feast of uh, uh, Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit came to indwell the believers. Again, church is already doing their thing. Feast of Trumpets, many, and I lean in that direction, think that points to the rapture. Again, not really need to do that because it's happened and we're already about our business. The Day of Atonement, again, he's there. I don't know. That's purely speculation. So one of the reasons why we're only going to have certain feasts and not all of them during the Millennial Kingdom could be tied to the other ones don't have the same remembrance purposes. But there's also the ones left might still have some future prophetic purpose. 
for the new heaven and the new earth. Because remember, the feasts were to point to what was to come. And I think the ones that are left might have a, still a future prophetic thing for the new heaven. And let me give you just one example. The Feast of Booths, for example. What was the whole point of the Feast of Booths? They were to remember in the wilderness and how God provided and, and, and they tabernacled. And they dwelt in, and they, during that time, they would make little huts and they'd live in them. Go to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, look at verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. By the way, during the Millennial Kingdom, you'll see next week, the sea still exists. It's referenced. So this is after the Millennial Kingdom. The sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God says, I get to come tabernacle with man. I wonder if the feasts that are left don't have still some prophetic thing to what's to come for the new heaven and the new earth. But he gets to come dwell with us, which is going to be a cool, cool thing. Again, to go any further than that would be to pure, be pure speculation. And as you know, I try not to do that. If I do speculate, I'll tell you it's speculation, but I'll show you the scriptures why I speculate that way. But you can chuck all that if you want to. All right, so go to Ezekiel 46. Look at verses 1 through 15. Says, Thus says the Lord God, the gate on the inner court that faces east shall be shut on six, the six working days, but on the Sabbath it shall be opened. And on the day of the new moon it shall be opened. The prince shall enter by the vestibule of the gate from the outside and shall take his stand by the post of the gate. The priest shall offer his burnt offerings and his peace offerings and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. And then he shall go out, but the gate shall not be shut until evening. The people of the land shall bow down at the entrance of that gate before the Lord on the Sabbaths and on the new moons. The burnt offerings that the prince offers to the Lord are on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. And the grain offering with the ram shall be an ephah. And the grain offering with the lamb shall be as much as he is able together with the hin of oil to each ephah. On the day of the new moon he shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and six lambs and a ram which shall be without blemish. As a grain offering, he shall provide an ephah with the bull and an ephah with the ram and with the lambs as much as he is able, together with a hint of oil to each ephah. When the prince, prince enters, he shall enter by the vestibule of the gate and shall go out by the same way. When the people of, of the land come before the Lord at the appointed feasts, he who enters by the north gate to worship shall go out by the south gate, and he who enters by the south gate shall go out by the north gate. No one shall return by way of the gate by which he entered, but each shall go out straight ahead. When they enter, the prince shall enter with them, and then when they go out, he shall go out. And the feasts and the appointed festivals, the grain offering with a young bull shall be an ephah, and a ram an ephah, and the lambs as much as one is able to give, together with a hint of oil to an ephah. 
When the prince provides a free will offering, either a burnt offering or a peace offering is a free will offering to the Lord. The gate facing east shall be opened for him and he shall offer his burnt offering for, or his peace offerings as he does on the Sabbath day. Then he shall go out and after he has gone out to the gate, the, gone out, the gate shall be shut. You shall provide a lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering to the Lord daily. Morning by morning you shall provide it and you shall provide a grain offering with it morning by morning on the one Sixth of an ephah and one third of a hin of oil to moisten the flour as a grain offering to the Lord. This is a perpetual statute. Thus the lamb and the meal offering and the oil shall be provided morning by morning for a regular burnt offering. All right. Now, if you remember the outer gate, if you remember that you got your paper that has the Millennial Kingdom Temple, you got the outer gates and you got the inner gates. The outer gate that faces east has already been shut. Why has that one been shut and sealed? Because God came through and it's holy and they sealed the outer gate at that time. Again, like we've already looked at, all this talk about the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem being sealed. It's not a fulfillment of Ezekiel because that's a gate to the city. This is a gate to the temple. They won't be sealed until after the Lord goes through it. And so that gate has been sealed. And as you saw, when people enter the temple area, they either have to go through the southern gate or the northern gate. There is no western gate, only through the southern or the northern. We'll get to that in a second. But this is the inner gate now that faces east. There's an inner set of gates, and only the prince and the priests that serve at the temple of the Lord that serve the Lord. Remember, the Zadokian priests are allowed inside that holy inner area. The rest of the Levites aren't allowed in that holy area. But the, the eastern gate that's in the center there, outside the Holy of Holies, is to be shut every working day. It's going to be shut all the time, except on the Sabbaths or on new moons. And it's to be open on those days so that people on the outer court can see the Lord and fall down and bow before Him. But the only one that's allowed to go through that gate is who? The prince. This, like we've looked at is David as he goes to do his offerings before the Lord. Now, back in verse 22, though, of chapter 45, we see the prince offering an offering for his sin and the sin of the people. See chapter 45, verse 22. It says, On that day the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a young bull for a sin offering. All right. That's where some people say, well, Jim, that means it can't be David because David will have his new body and David won't sin. And therefore, it can't be David offering a sin offering for his own sin because he doesn't have sin anymore. You do all realize that once we get out of these bodies and we get our new bodies, we're done with sin. When we get our new, I can't wait. That's just going to be an awesome thing. We get our new bodies, even though we're going to be in the millennial kingdom and there's going to be sin still on the earth because of the humans that have made it through the tribulation period. We ourselves won't sin anymore because we'll have our new bodies and they'll have, sin will have no effect on it and temptation won't. So people say, well, since David will be getting, getting his new body by then, David can't be offering sacrifice for his own sin. And for years that's given me a bellyache too because I think the scriptures clearly show that David's going to be the prince. Until God opened up my eyes and I was reminded of what I've been telling you. Are these sacrifices in the millennial kingdom sacrifices for sin? Do they take away sin? They're remembrance of what Jesus has done for sin. It's a picture to remind and to point to what Christ has done and to remember. And then I realized I take the Lord's Supper on a regular basis and hopefully you do as well. Do you take it for your sin? 
Yes, you do. You do it in remembrance because of your sin. His body was broken for me when I eat it. His blood was shed for me. It's a remembrance of your sin. But by the way, I thought your sin was separated as far as east is from the west. Do you, hopefully you don't think that all of a sudden eating that bread and drinking that cup washes your sins away. Hopefully you realize your sins have been already washed away. So you actually partake in a ritual because of your sin. I got no problem with David offering a sacrifice for his sin because all it's been all along is point to the sacrifice for sin. And it doesn't bother me anymore. I still think it could be David. But it's interesting how we see that the instructions are that they're to come and go in a certain way. Did you see how we looked in that section there? It said, of course, they can't come into the temple area through the eastern gate. That's shut and will be permanently shut. So when the regular folks come in and out into the outer court, they either have to come through the southern gate or come through the northern gate. But it says if they come through the southern gate, they have to go out the northern gate. If they come in the northern gate, they have to go out the southern gate. That's the instructions. Now, when the prince goes in before the Lord to offer the sacrifices, he has to go through the eastern gate on those certain days, inner gate, and he's to go out that way. He has to go in and out the same way. Because as you know in your picture that you have there, there's a southern gate on the inner temple and a northern gate. He's not allowed to go out those gates. He has to go in and out the same way he came. But the people cannot go out the same way they came. They go out a different way. Again, speculation. <laughs> Some say it's crowd control. And honestly, I have read that. Some people actually say, well, that's God doing crowd control. And boy, Disney could learn that on peak days, you know. But some are saying, that you just, if you're going the south, just keep going straight and going out the north, do your thing and go on out. I'm not so sure it's crowd control. Because it's interesting how David is not allowed to go out another way. He has to go in and out the same way. Stick with me here. I think that them going in one way and out another could simply be a reminder that we should not be the same person because of our contact with Jesus. David has a special role. He's going in and out the same way, and there's a holiness there that's tied to that, which we talked about last week. But I wonder if it's just simply as these worshipers come to worship, they come into the presence of the Lord. And we just read during those certain days, they'll be able to see him because the gate will be open and they'll be able to see the glory of the Lord. And they're going to bow down before the glory of the Lord. And then after that, you go out a different way. You don't go back to your old self. You don't go back to your old self. Yes. Go with me to Luke chapter 19. I wanted to do a whole study on this, but for the sake of time, I wanted to finish Ezekiel. And so we're not going to. But look at Luke 19, verses 1 through 9. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. By the way, I thought it'd be a good time of year to remind you that God loves tax collectors, okay? And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, 
He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. By the way, let me just point out to you, back in that day, if a rabbi ate at your house, it was a big deal. It was an honor. So in front of all these people who hated Zacchaeus, Jesus bestowed tremendous honor and said, I'm, gonna eat, I'm supposed to eat at your house today. And everybody was like, his house? Why couldn't it be my house? But why his house? He honored him. So he hurried down, came down, and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be a guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to, said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus had an encounter with Jesus. We don't have the conversation of what happened at the meal, but from just coming into the presence and having a real encounter with Jesus, Zacchaeus changed. He was a man that was hated. He was not respected. He was very wealthy because of his business dealings. But after having met Jesus, he said, I'm going to give away half of everything I have to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody, which, by the way, he had. The tax collectors in that day were very good at it because they had Roman authority to do so. He said, I'm going to pay them back four times as much. I'm going to ask you a question tonight. I'm not going to ask you, have you met Jesus? I'm not going to ask you, have you prayed a prayer? I'm not going to ask you, have you been baptized? I'm going to ask you, has your encounter with Jesus changed you? If there's been no real change, the Bible says you might not have what you think you do. Because he not only saves us, we then become his work project to conform us into the image of his son. And he's predestined to conform us into the image of his son. And he's going to work on us to have us become who he has in mind. And there should be a transformation. Listen, taking place. The Bible talks about it as moving from glory to glory. The Bible talks about it, we are to be growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are to be adding to our faith, love, knowledge, self-control, all these evidences of the Spirit. So I'm just going to ask you a question. I'm not asking, did you pray a prayer? I'm not asking, were you baptized? I didn't ask you if you joined the church. I'm asking, in your encounter with Jesus, do you feel like going out a different way? Because you're not who you were? Folks, let me just tell you, that's been one of the greatest confirmations of my salvation over the years is as I look at my life, I'm not who I was. I thank God for that. And the changes that are happening, and I got a wife and kids that are sitting here, and they can even tell, you can even ask them. When I was a younger preacher, I used to say, don't talk to my wife. You know, I would preach it and then say, but don't ask my kids. But I can tell you now, ask them. Is dad perfect? They're going to say no. But has there been a change? Is there evidence that dad knows Jesus? Is there an evidence that dad is growing in his walk with the Lord? Is my wife going to tell you, I'm glad I'm married to him almost 28 years now because things are getting better. I can look you in the eye and say, praise God, because of Jesus, the answer is going to be yes. And that ain't because of me.
but it's because I've started to really understand what it means to trust him, to take him at his word, not just to trust him for salvation, but to learn to trust him on a daily basis to do his work of changing me. So I'm going to ask you, because of your encounter with Jesus, do you feel like going out a different door? Because you're not the same person you were who came in the other door. Again, I don't know if that's why. It could simply be like Jeff said, crowd control. But I think that there's something to this. I think there's something to this. I don't know. But I hope for each of you, people around you can say, I'm glad my mom, dad, friend, coworker knows the Lord. Because they're different. In a good way. In a good way. We unfortunately in the church over the years have been known for saying one thing but then living another way. And you know what? That's going to happen. The Bible says there's seed that falls on rocky soil. There's seed that falls on thorny soil. You know, the only true evidence of real salvation is going to be time and a real transformation. The seed falling on the good soil. That's, that, that's just the way it's going to be. But I've had the privilege of the last three weeks of preaching at a church here in this area on supernatural relationships. And what God had me bring out was the fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, we don't regard anyone anymore according to the flesh. Although we used to regard Jesus in that way, we don't do that anymore. For if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And I preached a whole three-week series on the fact that biblically, the Bible says that how we're to see everyone lost and saved is through spiritual eyes, not according to the flesh, not as humans. In other words, when Paul said, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh, although we used to see Jesus that way, we don't do it anymore. In other words, he said, we used to think he was just a man. We don't look at him that way anymore. <laughs> we know that Jesus was God. And he said, in the same way, we need to see people in the spiritual realm. Either, either as in Christ or outside of Christ. Oh, listen closely. If they're outside of Christ... You won't get mad at them for what they're doing. They're doing the best they can. They don't know. Jesus had compassion because they were sheep without a shepherd. But if we look at people's actions and make judgments about them, oh, be careful. You know, the Bible says in the book of Matthew, chapter 7, with the measure you judge, you'll be judged. Do you want God to make judgments on about you the way you make judgments about other people? Why don't you just see them as people that need Jesus and love them for that fact? Oh, and also your brothers and sisters who are in Christ. Listen to me, you wives and husbands, your spouse who is in Christ. Whether you see it on a regular basis or not, they are a new creation. The old is gone. The new. Well, I don't see it. Well, is it your job to get them there? Or is it his job? And we ended the series this past week with the fact that the instructions in the scriptures clearly say that we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Because it's God who works in us to will according to his good purpose and act according to his good purpose. And when we take our eyes off of what everybody else is doing and put them back on our walk with the Lord, all of a sudden, the other stuff starts to fall by the wayside. Listen to me. Some of you are not growing in your walk with the Lord because you're spending too much time looking at how messed up the world is. Turn the news off. It shouldn't surprise you. The, world, the Bible says it's going to get like that. You don't need to sit there, and if it's making you get madder and madder and madder and madder, turn it off because you're looking at the flesh. You're not looking at the Spirit. 
If you spend a lot of your time not growing in your walk with the Lord because you're all bothered by brother or sister so-and-so in your church and how they act, turn your eyes off of them and put them back on Jesus. Because the Bible says when we have a real encounter with him, he is allowed, and he's allowed to do his work in us, he transforms us from the inside out. And we actually start to become someone that other people might want to be around. As a year, all my years as a pastor, I got tired of putting out fires. So-and-so was mad at so-and-so. So-and-so got their feelings hurt. So-and-so didn't get what they wanted. Boom, 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 boom. And I thought it was my job to try to keep everybody happy. Guess what? It about killed me. And then I stopped caring. Now, it didn't mean I don't care. I just don't care. I hope you hear what I'm saying. Jesus said, they're blind leaders of the blind. I'm not going to go chase the rich young ruler. I offered it to him. If he wants it, it's his. If he wants to walk away, we're not chasing him. Haven't I chose all of you, but one of you is the devil. I understand this. I'm going to keep doing what God tells me to do and work with whom God tells me to work with. And I'm leaving the results to the Lord. Folks, let me tell you, that's going to free you up in your walk with Jesus. If you've been derailed and people don't realize you've had an encounter with Jesus because they haven't seen a whole lot of difference between you and the world, chances are real good you're looking at the world instead of Jesus. Chances are you're looking at your brother and sister instead of Jesus. Let that stuff go if it's been sucking you down. Doesn't the Bible say, let us throw off every sin and entanglement that slows us down in this race and run with perseverance the race marked out for us? Oh, did you catch that? The race marked out for you. You know what? I, as my role as a pastor, I've got lots of people with expectations of where I'm supposed to be and how I'm supposed to talk to. And trust me, there's lots of people that expect. I even got a text tonight while I'm preaching about someone wanting me to do something. I haven't decided if I'm going to do it yet. And I might not. Oh, and they may get mad. But I'm running the race marked out for Jim Johnson. I want you to run the race marked out for you. Oh, and I might even think I disagree. That's none of my business either. You have an encounter with Jesus and let it happen on a daily basis as you lay your flesh on the altar and you let the Spirit do His work for today. And I promise you, the world will see a difference without you trying. Go for it. You got it. You got it. I love you guys. We will finish Ezekiel next week. Hope you're here.